From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado Mesa University is in a county that's lagging on vaccinations and where cases of COVID-19 are rising. But the school has also been a national model on how to track and fend off the virus. So what's the strategy as students return? We've taken a different approach. We think that critical thinking and personal agency are vital skills that college students need to learn. Then, summer seasons cut short for one lake in Colorado as water remains in short supply. And we revisit a ranch where they created a special bond between horse and human. And that right there planted a seed in me that made me realize that I didn't have to give up. I didn't have to give up on my life, myself, or anything anymore. I found something in me that day that just planted a seed of hope. I'm J.C. Futrell, and we donated our car to Colorado Public Radio. My family and I love CPR. That's where we get our news, our entertainment, and we love the local stories. It's been a dream of ours for years to be able to donate a car. We uh, totally recommend it for anyone else to do. It took just a few days between submitting online and having the tow guy come and take our vehicle away. It's easy to donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. How risky is it to send students back to school without vaccines or masks? That question is everywhere right now, including the campus of Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction. School officials launched an ambitious, nationally recognized program last year to prevent and detect the virus and keep the campus safe for in-person learning. They also made students wear masks. Students are now back on campus for the fall semester. Vaccines are more available, but the mask requirement is gone. That's in a county where COVID-19 rates are rising fast. About half of the residents have received at least one shot of the vaccine. The numbers are lower for college-aged people. We'll hear in a moment from University President John Marshall, who says there's more power in persuading students to get shots and wear masks than mandates. One test of that theory. A recent meeting between members of the football team and two Mesa faculty members with medical expertise who answered the athletes' questions about vaccines. We met some players at practice last week to hear how that session went. Wide receiver K.J. Sapp said he was never against the idea of getting a shot. He just wasn't sure. I kind of was just indifferent. I didn't know much about it. Um, I wasn't going to get it out of random, you know, curiosity. Um, but I also wasn't really against it either. You know, I wasn't I wouldn't consider myself anti-vax, but I'll just kind of see how it was going to go, how all the vaccinations would go, go and see uh, if it's something that I needed to do or not. But going into the meeting, defensive lineman Torin Calhoun wasn't buying it. Uh, me, I was not indifferent. I was not going to get the vaccine at all, unless I absolutely had to. Uh, I was just kind of leery about it. I felt like it came out a little bit fast, and uh, I felt like everybody was doing it at once. Uh, yeah, I just, I wasn't going to get it. Calhoun told me he was skeptical because of the long history of medical abuse of African Americans. If you look at the Tuskegee experiment, or if you look at, uh, in Mississippi, they used to have this thing called the Mississippi appendectomy, which ended up uh, being like when black women would go and get their appendix removed or something like that, and they would leave with a hysterectomy. So it comes from a long history of traumas and things that happen to black people. Offensive lineman Demetrius Cooley said he quizzed the faculty members about variants and the future of the virus. 
In the end, Cooley, Calhoun, and Sapp all decided to get the COVID-19 vaccine. When it came time to decide, Cooley said football was a factor. The team was only able to play three games last year. This season, they're scheduled for 10. Unvaccinated players will be allowed to play, but they'll have to undergo additional testing and other protocols. It, it will just make my life a lot easier, you know, as far as moving around, traveling, being around other people, things like that. So I just felt like it was just the best decision. And then, like, uh, a big part of it was my family also, because I have family, you know, that have, like, underlying conditions and things like that. So it wasn't just a decision for me. It was more so the people around me. So what would the players have done if they had been required to take the vaccine? Sapp said he would most likely have gone along, but he's not sure about some of his teammates. If they didn't give us as much information as they had, um, if they were kind of were just like, you have to get vaccinated, there's no question. I'm sure a lot of players would have been frustrated and some people might have chose not to play this year and opted out. Colorado Mesa president John Marshall says 26 players got vaccinated after that meeting. He joins me now. John, welcome to the program. Thank you. We heard some of the vaccine hesitancy people often talk about questions, concerns they have about the vaccine. And so far, young people seem to be very hard to persuade. In Mesa County, among those ages 20 to 29, about 35 percent have gotten their shots. Do you have a sense of how many Mesa students have been vaccinated? Yeah, it's quite a bit better than that. Um, you know, it depends on the, the subpopulation, right? As it turns out, a university is not a monolith either. And so you've got a wide variety, right? You've got first-time entering freshmen who are in a residence hall. You've got athletes. You've got more active students. And then you've got commuter students whose um, engagement with the campus looks a little bit different. But overall, we're substantially better than the, than the overall averages. And as you've tested students since their arrival for COVID-19, what have you found? Yeah, so we have given students three different options to come back to campus safely. They can demonstrate protective immunity. They can do that either by demonstrating a former positive or a vaccination. And the vast majority of our students are in that camp. Um, And then for those who don't have protective immunity, we've asked them to continue to test on their way in and then participate in our testing regime moving ahead. You said that students at Mason University are substantially more vaccinated than the base population. Um, How much better is substantially better? Yeah, probably um, in working with Mason County Public Health, we've been carefully analyzing the broad landscape of protective immunity. And we sit somewhere between 80 and 90 percent protective immunity for our campus. Are you including folks who have already had COVID-19 in that? That's right. Yep. So we would view protective immunity as those who've had it, as well as those who've been vaccinated. And then you have to work out the difference of those who have been in both camps. That does get complicated with the Delta variant. Are you considering that as you consider what is protective immunity, since there's still a lot of conflicting research about who is immune after they've had COVID and for how long? So for much of the country, uh, Delta variant is something that's relatively new, and there's a lot of conjecture and fear around it. In Mesa County, we've been dealing with this for about five months. And so as far as data and evidence goes, we're actually better positioned than most communities in the country to tell you exactly how that experience has gone. And here's what it's looked like. We've had a surge with Delta as our primary variant that was really focused around May and June. And during that time period, we really didn't see any meaningful reinfection 
meaning out of nearly 19,000 cases in Mesa County, we've had fewer than 100 reinfections. And so what that tells you is that both having the vaccine and having been infected with COVID, even in the face of Delta as the primary variant, have demonstrated in this community that they are exceedingly effective at preventing serious COVID infections. Uh, When you're talking about the number of students who have already had COVID-19, that's not that each of those students has been tested and found positive. That is somewhat based on projections, right? Yeah, it's a combination of the two. Now, we actually have a calculation. We have a um, an equation for calculating that. We use multipliers that are about half the number that the CDC estimates. Um, so we're far more conservative than both the CDC and Mesa County. And we've used actuals around... Um, you know, if you think about that Venn diagram between those who've been vaccinated and those who've had it, that shared uh, data set there that have been in both camps, we've used actuals in that. There is evidence that antibodies against COVID-19 do wane over time. How are you following that kind of data? We know that, uh, or we suspect that these things are going to wane. So our challenge is to follow this data very, very closely. We'll get back to COVID and prevention and what the different things that are going on on campus in a moment. Um, School officials met with athletes and spoke to them at some length about the need for shots. What has been most persuasive? Well, let's let's back up and talk about the precursors for the conversation. Some universities have just said issued broad mandates and said, in order to continue to be a student, you have to be vaccinated. We've taken a different approach. We think that critical thinking and personal agency are vital skills that college students need to learn. And so just like we do in a variety of other topics, we've really challenged our students uh, to make the difficult sort of decision and go through that critical thinking and exploration with us. And that posture is very different. So coming at it from a position of um, engaging in conversation rather than um, telling what you shall and shall not do, where you are coming from, what your personal history is, what your cultural background looks like, or your medical situation, we don't know. So we're not going to make assumptions about that. All we're going to do is engage with you on why we think it's a really good idea for you to get vaccinated. And in the course of that, you find students willing to ask really good questions and be much more vulnerable and listen in a way, because again, you're starting from a position of maybe more more humility. Vaccines are one piece of prevention. Masks are another. Masks will be encouraged indoors at Mesa, but they're not required in class or elsewhere on campus. Does the risk of spread as people go unmasked worry you? So we're looking at a whole series of data points as we did last year. And so that means from day to day and week to week, we need to know exactly what our campus families, or what we call our Maverick families, which we, we refer to as Mavilies, those family units across campus, we've got to track those really, really carefully. And so those higher risk Mavilies, which would be residence halls, athletics teams, sororities and fraternities and things like that, we've got to have really good insight into those spaces. But between trust with students, which you build through respectful conversation and with transparency, you can do that more effectively. And so as it comes to masks, part of our challenge is we need to be honest about the fact that we have very little COVID on this campus. Will we have to do something different if conditions change? You bet. 
We're going to watch the data. We're going to watch the evidence. We know that protective immunity has been incredibly effective at preventing serious COVID. And then continue to engage in, with our students about, uh, look, this is all of our responsibility coming together here. What we've built our triggers around in terms of pivot points that we would do something different, increased um, restrictions, for example, we've done that around a whole series of indicators. And so, for instance, on a college campus, you're much less concerned about hospitalizations because young people, it just, you know, COVID-19 just does not affect young people the same way it does different populations. So, for instance, last year we had 1,600 and change. We had no hospitalizations and really no medical care to speak of. So what you're looking at as trigger points are slightly different than the broader community. And that's Whereas among students. A, is that among professors and people who work on campus as well? Th- that's right, yeah. So as you think about um, the overall campus community, what we're really trying to focus on is where are those high-risk populations? Let's make sure they have access to vaccines early. Let's make sure that they've got um, the resources they need. And then let's figure out how we really are assessing um, multi-layered uh, what analyses of how we view all of our various populations across campus. And by doing that, what we really allow ourselves to do is, is really make kind of surgical changes rather than these sort of broad sweeping dictates around campus. Back in May, Mesa was the first county in the state to report the Delta variant. There was a surge, and then cases dropped off for several weeks. They're growing very quickly again. Is now the time to take masks off? Well, they haven't been on since May. And for Mesa County, um, you know, the the reality is that culturally here, um, it's felt pretty different through this entire pandemic. I would tell you if you were to step foot in Grand Junction versus Denver, it just feels very different. And part of that is because it's a little more rural. Part of that is because it's a little more isolated. And we really haven't seen uh, on campus or in the community any kind of masking sense. So for us, the construct uh, becomes what are the conditions by which you would start to increase restrictions? And that's what we're watching really closely. What are those conditions for Colorado Mason University? Yeah, one of them is going to be tracking overall cases. Are we seeing, say, new conditions? For instance, um, are we seeing young people getting reinfected in a meaningful way? That would be new and different information, and that would be really important for us. The same would be true for breakthrough cases. If all of a sudden we started to see significant breakthrough cases in young people, that would be an important and new piece of information. You know, isolation quarantine protocols, we all got a lot better at last year. But um, the other piece we didn't talk a ton about is what the effect of that has in a classroom. So if I got a classroom of 30 or 40 students and half of them are gone, you know, the pedagogy around that's really challenging to teach to 20 students in class and 20 online. So there's a disruption to the operation of the university. It's also a consideration. And then we have the same kind of challenges like anywhere else, which is how many isolation and quarantine beds you have, how many of those are being used up. You look at how quickly and availably we can test students and how quickly we can turn those and a variety of these other considerations that I've described. One of the things you have to appreciate about Colorado Mesa University is that two thirds of our students are going to be first in their family to go to college, low income or students of color. And so when we all went home during that spring break of 2020, 
we surveyed our students as they went online and said, how's it going? How are classes? Is, do you have a laptop? Do you have access to the internet? Have you figured out how to use your course shell and, and you know, these sort of detailed ways we explore online courses, right? And what we heard in very clear response from those students is it's not going well. And we knew within a few weeks, we had to find a way to get back in person. We made a decision that we had a moral imperative to get those students back face-to-face. From there, we set about figuring out the how. Within you know, days, not weeks, we had set up a mass testing site that became you know, the model for what was set up up and down the front range effectively. We were connected with the Broad Institute of Harvard and MIT, Fathom Informational Designs that helped us build out our app and our tracking system. Um, our faculty members who built wastewater monitoring sites from scratch, you know, with our engineering students alongside them. A lot of pieces to that strategy. So let's kind of parse those out piece by piece. You mentioned an app. It's called Scout. Tell me a little bit more about what that is. And is that still part of what you're using on campus today? Yeah, well, let me let me talk about what it was used as last year and then how it's evolved. Of course, last year with no vaccine and no kind of protective immunity, you're coming at this with a campus of 10,000 saying, we've got to figure out how to make sure that people are tested frequently. So that app turned into what we call the wellness passport. So as I go through, I get my test, I clear that. I had this green screen on my app and I walk into class and I was able to show my professors that green screen. If I also then went through, got my test and it came back inconclusive or that I was positive, well, that screen flipped red. And so a faculty member could quickly see that and say, nope, I'm sorry, uh, you need to go isolate. It also allowed us in real time, as soon as a test result to come back, to find that student, reach out to them and get them into isolation quarantine. Furthermore, it has what they call a symptom track on there. And so every morning I'm prompted to enter in if I have any symptoms, headache, cough, sneezing, loss of taste and smell, et cetera. As soon as that information is entered in, uh, again, it triggers a phone call, shows up on a call center where we were able to reach out to them and make sure they're getting care out at the student wellness center. This year with the conditions are different, right? We've got the vaccine, we've got protective immunity. This year, we've reversed the polarity of that. We're asking students to use that for affirmative symptoms. So if a student's got a symptom that they're using that uh, tracker and it's triggering that same um, protocol to ensure that they're getting contacted, they're getting seen by a professional, they're getting tested, if those symptoms are still occurring, that they're isolating and not getting to class. You also mentioned Mavelis, and that's that portmanteau of families and the student mascot, the Maverick. Um, how did right. these groups that you broke students into, how did those help you track cases? In the same way, Avery, that maybe you or I, you know, when we go home at night, we don't, we don't mask up and socially distance from those in our home. The same was true. We knew with 19-year-olds going into this, it was not reasonable to think that you were going to keep um, small groups of friends, teammates, et cetera, from being in community with one another. So what we told them was, we don't need you to be isolated. We just need you to stick with your people. Pick your Mavely and stick with them. And what that allowed us to do then is to sort of cluster those small groups. And so if we started to see some spread in a sports team, we'd shut that team down. We would run them all through testing. We could track 
the uh, source of infection and then put a stop to it. Are there going to be Mabelies this year? Yeah, so we're thinking about that very differently because because of this idea of protective immunity. So within sports teams and within our residence halls, we now have line of sight, which we didn't have at the time. So now I've got um, dashboards for key university administrators who can see into the specific spot of a residence hall. They can diagram out what that looks like and see where we've got protective immunity, where we don't, and where we have um, positive cases. And so our ability to respond today, it's given us the ability to allow students a lot more freedom. And by the way, Avery, I, you know, a year ago, we were sitting here and, and frankly, you know, some of the same critics were saying, you guys should be online. You should have singles in all your dorm rooms. You shouldn't be playing sports. We pushed ahead. And so here we are a year later, we're cutting a little bit different path. Some of those same critics are raising an eyebrow and asking those questions. And I would simply respond again, we've got the right principles. We've got the right team. We've got the right mission anchor. And that is trying to ensure that first-generation low-income students of color that make up our student body continue to have a path forward um, when we know nationally so many students have just simply opted out. The wastewater thing that you mentioned, that has been a really important part of this, too. You had crews, some of them included students, going to the depths, I guess you could say. Explain to me just a little bit more, because this piece is so interesting, and it's since been adopted in a lot of different places, including in some municipalities. Um, What's the information that it provided that you needed? Effectively, what we're doing is taking samples out of residence halls in particular, right? Because that is sort of a closed system. I know the 300 students who reside in that particular residence hall and our faculty on the engineering side took samples of water. They extracted the RNA out of those samples and then they tested for COVID. If somebody is infected, where it first starts to manifest itself before you even know you're infected is in your waste. And so if you're monitoring that carefully, it serves as something of a warning bell So we found a variety of times where we would have um, a residence hall where all of a sudden you'd start to see spiking wastewater and we would go in, we'd descend on that dorm, we would test everybody in it, and we would find four or five kids who didn't even know they were positive. We were able to pull them out, get them isolated, and prevent an outbreak. We'll do it differently this year because now you have a variety of former positives and there's a sort of what they call viral shedding going on. And so it's not the same. We have a whole new scientific conundrum to kind of navigate through, but we're still doing that work. What have you doubled down on this year because it was particularly useful for you last year? One of the things we know is air exchanges in classrooms and buildings is incredibly important. So we spent um, a fair amount of money upgrading all of our filtration systems and then really turning up air exchange rates. We know that that mitigation as one of many strategies really works. John, I want to thank you so much for your time and for sharing what you're doing at Colorado Mesa University. Thank you. John Marshall became president of Colorado Mesa University July 1st. In his previous role as the school's vice president, he helped a program that gained national recognition for controlling the virus on the CMU campus. The summer season that ended on Labor Day was cut short for one lake in Colorado, which had to supply water for an out-of-state reservoir. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis reports. People wait in line at Elk Creek Marina to back their trailers into the water to pull their boats out. And some, like Walter Swetkoff, are frustrated. 
Swetkoff and his wife have sailed Blue Mesa Reservoir outside of Gunnison for more than 30 years. We've seen this lake go up and down many times, but we're not happy with it this year, of course, because we're all getting kicked out early and we pay for our slips for the season. Blue Mesa is Colorado's largest reservoir. It's less than 38 percent full, and there's worry that the floating docks in the marina will soon hit the bottom of the lake. So they need to be moved to deeper water to prevent damage. The National Park Service said the boats stored there had to go with just a 10 days notice. Since they've opened the lake, we've never had to get boats out this early. Elk Creek season was cut short because of drought. With climate change, there's less snowpack, and warmer temperatures means less water is making it into reservoirs and the Colorado River. Eric Loken is head of operations at Elk Creek. His family has managed the marina for more than 30 years. We're basically cutting out six weeks out of our five-month season, so it's a big hit for us, for sure. There's a bunch of employees that thought they would be employed into October, and suddenly they're out looking for employment in the middle of August. The 20-year mega drought in the West has dealt a double blow to Blue Mesa this summer. The dry conditions have led to lower levels directly, but this lake is also hurt by drought problems in other states. For the first time, the federal government is taking emergency action by taking water from Blue Mesa to help out another reservoir. If we were full, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. But since we're already so low and we're barely, you know, hanging on by our fingertips on trying to stay open, you take eight feet of water and suddenly we got to shut the doors and move everything out to deeper water and there's nothing we can do about it. That Blue Mesa water is headed to Lake Powell on the Utah-Arizona border, which hit its lowest level on record earlier this summer. Loken doesn't know if the emergency water releases are the primary reason the marina's season was cut short. But each time the levels in the lake drop by a foot, he loses 10 feet of usable boat ramp. For Loken, this is a lot of water to lose during one of the busiest periods at the lake. And he's afraid that Lake Powell will need more water from Blue Mesa if the drought doesn't improve. The question is, are they just going to release whatever we get? That would become a a very big problem for everyone around here. The states that share Colorado River water agreed to this plan in 2019. Low levels in Lake Powell would trigger an emergency release from three reservoirs upstream. The water that was taken from Blue Mesa is being used to make sure hydroelectric power turbines at Lake Powell can keep spinning and generating electricity for millions of people in the West, including Colorado. This was the purpose for those reservoirs. That's John McLeod, a lawyer for the Upper Gunnison River Conservancy District. He says Blue Mesa and the other reservoirs were built in the 1960s for drought emergencies, not recreation. It's a bank of water that the states can tap if they have to, The water has always been destined to be sent to Lake Powell to help Colorado meet its legal obligations to downstream states. McLeod says his problem is less about the amount of water that was taken and much more about the timing. They could have timed it better to protect the recreational opportunities here. They didn't need to send it to Lake Powell in August. They could have waited till October. Eric Knight is a hydrologist for the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation. He says the timing of the releases might have hurt the lake, but it helped rafting and fishing downstream of Blue Mesa. Those flows would have been low enough this year that there probably wouldn't have been any commercial recreation down there on that section of the river. So it's kind of a trade-off in our viewpoint. Knight said the Bureau could take more water from Blue Mesa to protect hydroelectricity production at Lake Powell if snowpack and runoff remain low next year. Obviously, we need to be ready to do something, and so we've done a little bit so far, but no one can really answer the question as to whether if not that would be enough or not. Knight hopes there's more snow in the mountains next year, so the drought won't be as dire. But he realizes that hope might not be enough, and he says the people who rely on the Colorado River might need to adapt the system to a drier, warmer future, one its creators never imagined. 
I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. When we come back, a ranch that's changing the lives of horses and humans at the same time. With horses, you have to be completely honest and open, and you have to be completely present when working with them. If not, then they'll run all over you. And I just, I was tired of being run over by myself, by addiction, by everything else. And I just, I found a strength that I didn't know that I had working with them. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. If you want to name a mountain in Colorado, where do you start? What is the state's most iconic food? Why does Pena Boulevard have a bike lane? And does anyone use it? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Corey Jones from the CPR Newsroom, and we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders and help us all discover more about our state of wonders. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Professional horse trainer Ginger Gaffney got an unusual call for help about eight years ago. It was from a ranch near her home in northern New Mexico that serves as an alternative to prison. The ranch was having horse troubles. Gaffney stopped by and was astounded at what she found. She wrote about it in her memoir, Half Broke. Gaffney and Ayla Jarvis, a former resident of the ranch, spoke with my colleague Andrea Dukakis. Ginger, Ayla, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having us. The residents of this ranch are people who've had run-ins with the law or have substance abuse problems. They're in the program to turn their lives around, and they run all aspects of the ranch, from cooking to livestock care to administration. There are no wardens or guards. Ginger, why did they ask for your help? Because the the horses were uh, running after the residents and chasing them down. A few times a day, every time they brought the trash out, people were hurt. Their ankles were uh, sprained, wrists were sprained, and then there was also some very bad horse accidents that had happened. And they had sort of, they didn't know what to do about it. And they reached out. Uh, they, they found my card at a Española feed store and called me one day. Ginger, on your first day at the ranch, the horses chased you and some of the residents into the hay barn. One of the horses is named Hawk. Can you read what happens next for us? The horses roar up to the wooden gate at a gallop, a band of snaked bodies twisting and kicking dirt into the air. They level their heads and necks down to the height of their shoulders, flat, thin, and ready to strike. It sounds like a hiss, but it's more like spit. Hawk opens his mouth and his teeth jut forward at us. He snaps his jaw shut and curls back his lips. The force of it shoots a mist of saliva all over our faces. He can see us, they all can, but they cannot get to us. Their dark, hollow eyes are unrecognizable to me. Watching them bare their teeth at us like predators, as if we were their meal, makes me think these are not horses. Ginger, you've worked with horses for years, many that had serious problems, but explain how this was different. Well, you rarely see the instincts of horses reversed, where they're really a prey animal. They're fairly easy to dominate because of that. They're a flight animal. They flee before they fight. So what they did at at the ranch was they had reversed the flight instincts and it turned into a fight instinct. Mm -hmm. And you rarely see that. Occasionally, you'll might see it in a stallion, but a whole herd of horses acting like that is not ever seen. We'll get back to the horses in a moment, but Ayla, you were 26 when the court ordered you to the ranch. It was a few months before Ginger got there, and this would have been your third time in prison. You went to the ranch instead. 
What was going on in your life when you originally ended up in prison way back at age 19? At the time, I was working in a family business that was selling marijuana, and we were arrested on a federal case, all of us. And so I spent four years in prison the first time, and then I was paroled, and I did really well for a while, and then I relapsed on heroin and then committed a series of small crimes and then had a parole violation and picked up another state case in New Mexico, actually, and then went back to prison. And then they were going to sentence me to a third term in prison when I had the choice to go to Delancey Street. And we should say um, that the ranch is called the Delancey Street Ranch, which is part of a San Francisco-based organization. That's correct. And what were your first impressions of the ranch? It was very tough. I, I really didn't know what I was getting into before I got there. And I came in and they dressed me in really baggy clothes. And I, I had to pretty much shed the exterior of who I thought I was. And I had to work and I had to hold myself accountable and I had to be honest and I had to wake up and, and do something every day, which was a lot different than the prison scene that I had just come from. I wanted to leave the first year I was there. <laughs> I didn't want to be there <laughs> at all. I thought prison was a lot easier. And so... I just remember crying. I remember breaking down. I remember just becoming really hopeless because I didn't think I could make it through the program. So you'd been at the ranch for seven months when you were assigned to the livestock team. And these are the residents who care for the ranch animals. What was that like? I didn't want to become part of the livestock team at first. I was very apprehensive. Um, at that point in my stay, I I was very hopeless and I was finding trouble caring for myself and for others. And I was at a kind of a despondent state where I didn't, I didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to either die or go back to prison. And that's where my mentality had, had shifted to. It was very narrow. So my mentor at the time kept encouraging me to join the livestock program to hopefully help me get out of myself and, and help me um, do something different. Because I was at a, at a juncture where Delancey Street was like, we don't know if we can help you anymore because you're so lost. And the mentors are other people who are living at the ranch who have been there longer than you had. That's correct. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, Ella, we'll talk about your experiences early on with the horses, but let's get back to the horses themselves. Ginger, you chose to begin your work with Hawk, this aggressive horse that we heard about earlier. And by the end of your session with him, you were able to put a halter on him and to pet him. What mindset did you need to make that happen? Well, Hawk was the leader of the of the herd, and it was real clear. And, and being a horse trainer for 25 years, and you need to solve a problem, you figure out who's in charge. And Hawk was in charge. And so what I know about horses is none of them really want to be number one. It's the most stressful part of the herd. You're in charge of finding food. You're in charge of safety. And very few horses really want to be number one. Though that, that whole herd of horses all wanted to be number one. But Hawk was the leader, and I had to shift his mentality to accept the fact that he could be number two. And it was a very, he was very aggressive. And number two after you. After me, that's right. I was number one. And with Hawk, he had been able to dominate almost 100 people at this ranch. And so the first scene in the book is me working with Hawk in the round pen, trying to convince him that I was something that could be respected. And you weren't just a horse trainer at the ranch. You had to find a way to teach the residents how to work with these horses. And they weren't typical horse handlers. How did you go about teaching them? 
for the first couple of months, I hauled my horses over to the ranch. Um, I would work with the, with the Delancey Street horses myself in the round pen, trying to create some safety and some respect. And then when, on the days when I worked with the residents, I would haul over about five horses and we'd put the Delancey horses up so they couldn't get to us. And we all worked with horses that were trained. And it was a, a big surprise for the residents because they'd never, most of them don't know horses. And they were like, wow, is this what horses are supposed to be like? I didn't know that, <laughs> you know. So it was just getting them to have in their bodies a way of moving around horses that horses could relate to, like being able to look up, open up their chest, kind of walk with confidence, but with ease at the same time, not with like angry movements. And so I was just teaching them body language. It's also noticing the horse's body language. That's right. It's a whole world of language that has no words and very little sounds. And a lot of the guys would be, you know, talking and going, come on, man, come on. get!" And I'd say, wait, 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 they do not understand you. Your whole body needs to talk, not just your mouth. That subtle things are really more effective than the things that you could do with whips and ropes you could do with your body. You and Ella worked together at the ranch. Ginger, what were your first impressions of her? Oh, my goodness. Um, I actually have pictures of Ayla, and sometimes I look at them just to remind me because she's made such a transformation. But Ayla would never look up. She had the habit of pulling most of her hair out from around her face and twirling it. And I was a little overwhelmed because I'd never worked with somebody that despondent. So I had to really wake her up, and I was afraid for her, her safety because she was that far gone. I mean, she just wasn't with me. And so often I'd be like, I'd have to clap right in front of her face, or I'd have to really scream at her to get her to look up. Because you didn't feel she was paying attention. She was not. She was gone. You know, she was not just not looking, but she wasn't even there. And Ella, let's talk about one of your first experiences with the horses. Ginger asked you to hold a horse's hoof so it could be trimmed. And what happened next? Well, it was raining. I was soaking wet. I was tired. And I, I didn't really understand how this was going to help me in any way. <laughs> but I was willing at that point to pretty much try anything just because I, I had become so desperate. And I started to feel a little bit of a change just from being out there around the animals. So when she asked me to to trim the hoof, I, I was a bit curious, but I, I really didn't see the benefit in it. But I I did it anyways. And I just remember getting jostled around, the horse rearing up on me, getting thrown around. I was bleeding. I was soaking wet. And I just had this determination to finish it out. And and that right there planted a seed in me that made me realize that I didn't have to give up. I didn't have to give up on my life, myself, or anything anymore. And so it was that moment that I just wanted to finish. And I didn't want to just finish the one hoof. I wanted to do all four. <laughs> I was absolutely determined. I spent hours out there until it was dark. And I I uh, found something in me that day that just planted a seed of hope. And that was early on. How did working with the horses affect you after you had been with them for a longer amount of time? Oh, it just completely opened me up. And I, I, I remember waking up one morning and hearing the horses neigh outside, and I thought to myself, I said, huh, I wonder if they've been fed yet, if someone's been out there to feed them and take care of them. And for me, that was like an instant click that, wow, I actually care about something. Because not caring for so long, not even caring about myself or anybody around me or any living thing for that matter, 
um, to actually realize like I have an interest in something else's well-being, especially a living creature, was very transformational for me. And from that point on, I was like, you know what? I can care and I can care about myself. And then that transferred into caring about other people and in turn caring about my future. And then I remember riding a horse and, and feeling like the horse was an extension of myself because Ginger would always say, think of the horse's legs as your legs. And so when they would run fast, I say, I would feel the sense of power. Like, you know what? I can run fast too. I can, I can take hold of my life and really, and really change. And I, they helped me believe in change. And I had to really get honest with myself because with horses, you have to be completely honest and open and you have to be completely present when working with them. If not, then they'll run all over you. And I just, I was tired of being run over by myself, by addiction, by everything else. And I just, I, um, I found a strength that I didn't know that I had working with them. And Ginger, eventually you felt like you fit in at the ranch in a way you hadn't felt before. Um, what was it about being among a bunch of recovering addicts and offenders that felt right to you? Um, growing up, I came out... Um, as a queer woman, like in my high freshman year of high school, but I came out, but I was still really, you know, the other because at that time it was the seventies, and so I was really alone. And I don't know that that was completely what made me such a isolated human being because I grew up as an extreme introvert as well. Like I didn't speak until I was seven years old, and really didn't speak a lot until college. So there was a time in my life that I was a ghost to myself, just not there. And everybody around me knew it and nobody knew how to reach me. And when I got to the ranch, it took a while for me to realize how much the shapes of the people reminded me of myself. And I ended up going back in time in my memories and just feeling how desperately isolated I was and alone. And I couldn't help but see myself in them. I have never been, uh, had addictions, but I had a time in my life that I think now during this time you would have called it depression or close to even suicidal perhaps, you know, and I saw it all around me there in the shapes and the forms and the body movements. And it was like looking into a mirror. It was pretty hard, pretty, um, I think I started feeling shame again, you know, mm. and that just, it woke me up. And it also, it woke me up in a way of my community because I wasn't somebody who had a, a like a soft heart around addiction. I've been robbed about four times, all by addicts, and they steal my saddles and my bridles, and I had a pretty ugly attitude. And when I started stripping away, and I was watching people weekly strip away, and I started seeing people for who they really were, and it just brought up a lot of compassion that I never really had for addicts. You still volunteer at the ranch. You also do other work with horses and people in recovery. Yes. What makes horses good for this kind of work? Oh, absolutely. This is like the message for me with the book is people in recovery have really uh, lost it themselves, lost their bodies. And Ayla was one of the people who just was gone. Her body was no longer a functioning body. And we see so much of that in our communities, right, on the streets and on the corners. Horses demand that you get into your body. And for me, what I've learned about recovery is, is the recovery comes up through the body and then into the brain. And so the brain can function after the body gets back to work. And so it's step by step getting people back into their bodies. Being in the presence of an animal, like Ayla said, is like um, wakes you right up because you have to be right there on your feet, your whole body present. And so recovery and horses, to me, it's an absolute match. And Ayla, you're out in the world again. 
talk about what you're doing these days. <laughs> I'm doing quite a bit, actually. <laughs> uh, sometimes I think I'm doing too much. Um, so I'm working on finding a balance now to kind of find some downtime because I've realized that's important in recovery as well. So I am actually doing quite a bit. Um, as soon as I left the ranch, I started riding with a farrier, and a farrier is a horse shoer and horse hoof trimmer. And that's kind of what, what my first introduction to the horses was with Ginger. And so w- once that helped transform me, I, I really wanted to continue to shoe and trim horses. And blacksmith is one of the things that I do as well. And so I, I learned from, I, I apprenticed with a lady for over a year and started my own farrier business called ANA Hoof Care. And I do that with a partner who went to horse shoeing school also from the program. And then that helped me get into the place where I live right now, which is the ranch. So I, I work there and I pay most of my rent through working with the horses. And the horse community really took me in in a lot of ways. As soon as I left the program, I really relied on them and they helped me. They opened their doors to me and opened their arms to me and homes to me. And I was able to really stay grounded through the horses. The other thing I do is I work as a full-time event and wedding planner at a golf course. That is a lot. Yeah. (laughs) And then I also do a part-time beekeeping. I have my own little business. It's called Best Beesness. <laughs> so I do beekeeping, and then I'm also a college student right now at the Central New Mexico Community College. So horses really remain an important part of your emotional health. Absolutely. Yes. They keep me grounded, and they keep me honest. And anytime I'm feeling a little bit stressed out or overwhelmed with life, I know if I go out there with the horses, they're going to be a reflection of my my energy level. And so I really have to calm myself. And I find it very therapeutic to even go out and muck, which is pick up their manure. (laughs) It's a form of therapy for me. Anything to be near them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And Ginger, we talked about how you felt like you never fit in for most of your life. Now you're a white woman living and working in a Hispanic Catholic community in New Mexico. How do you fit in there? I think I fit in really well. I, you know, what matters most in my valley is um, work, hard work, how you take care of your land, and how you take care of your animals. And in my community, people come to me to ask me to help them when their horses are injured. They ask me to go into the mountains and help them gather their cattle. Being queer and being white, and even though I'm like the minority in my valley, I've always felt really welcomed. I've always felt really appreciated. And I feel like it's a real example that, you know, people that are queer can live rurally and feel safe. I get that question a lot when I'm out reading for the book because I think people would like to move out of the city. Some people would like to live how I live, but they've never felt safe. So I think my story is a, a little bit of hope for that. The book lays bare a lot of your life and raw emotions. How does it feel to have people reading it now? Oh, it's really, I'm such an introvert that I'm pushed on this one. It's very hard to get out into the public. Um, You know, if I can do it, then other people can do it. And that's what's happening when I'm out to reading. I just try to be really honest about my own introversion and that um, this is really hard for me, and but I, you know, I believe in what we did together, and it's pushing me to get the story out. And maybe there are people out there that it'll really resonate with. I really hope so. But that's my motive, and that's what's behind. That's what's pushing me because I would not be doing this on any natural way, any other way. <laughs> and Ella, what was it like to read someone else's portrayal of you? It was great to see what somebody else saw. 
Um, but at the same time, in, in your in my head, I, I really built up that I wasn't as bad as I thought I was. And so to realize how I was actually portraying myself and how somebody else uh, saw me, it was a uh, it was pretty eye opening to say the least. And it really brought me back. To, reading reading Ginger's book is really brought me back to uh, the places and the transformation process that I went through, and it's it's made me feel a lot better. Um, because I realized everything that I, all the challenges that I had to go through and and really relive those. And it just makes me really proud to be where I am today. Ginger, Ayla, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank, thank you. you for having us. Professional horse trainer Ginger Gaffney's memoir is Half Broke, about working with troubled horses and the residents of an alternative prison ranch in New Mexico. Ayla Jarvis is a former ranch resident. Her story is part of the book. They spoke in February of last year with my colleague Andrea Dukakis. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. We've made the next pick for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. It's The Guide by Peter Heller. It's set at a fishing lodge in Colorado. It rejoices in the natural world, but also dabbles in the dark side of human nature. She said, dang, where did all this darkness come from? I mean, the teenage boy that I knew wasn't that dark. So pick up a copy of The Guide, read it, and then meet the author Peter Heller in a virtual event with Ryan on September 30th. That's a Thursday evening. Tickets are free at CPR.org slash turn the page. Again, that's CPR.org slash turn the page. Thanks for joining us and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Ali Budner, Anthony Cotton, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.